Thank you for praying along with me here this morning. Um, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 45 to 52 this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. I, uh, as you turn there, I hope as you're looking at your HD screens, your high def screens, that you see a little bit less a lint on my coat and my sweater. I'm looking in the screen right now. <laughs> Apparently I got home last week and um, some family members uh, saw some specks of lint on my coat. So early this morning I got out my lint roller and I uh, rolled my sweater and my coat and my tie. So hopefully there's no lint distractions for you this morning. Uh, anyways, uh, Mark chapter 6. We'll read that text in just a moment, but in preparation for reading that text, uh, this passage of Scripture reminded me of a favorite hymn uh, that many of us have enjoyed for years. And uh, the text of that hymn, I'll just read a little bit of it here in preparation for the reading of our passage. The Lord is our rock, in Him we hide. The shelter in a time of storm. Secure whatever ill betide. A shelter in a time of storm. The raging storms may around us beat. We'll never leave our safe retreat. O rock divine, O refuge dear, be thou our helper ever near. A shelter in a time of storm. O Jesus is a rock in a weary land. O Jesus is a rock in a weary land. A shelter in the time of storm. Jesus is our shelter in the time of storm, isn't he? I hope he is to you and has been to you. And if you're joining us this morning and you would long for Jesus to be that shelter in a time of storm for you, uh, and you'd love to have him fill that void in your heart, that, uh, we would love to help you with that. I would love to talk to you personally about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he can uh, be that shelter in a time of storm for you uh, as your Lord and Savior. So please feel free to reach out to us through our website. Feel free to call us and we would be glad to get in touch with you this week. And um, But for those of us who know him, uh, he is this shelter for us in this storm. We'd like to talk to you a little bit about that from God's word here this morning. I just want to remind us here that though we pray for and we're incredibly thankful for uh, those who are helping us medically through this crisis, the World Health Organization, uh, our political leaders on the national, state, and local level, I could always say to you that um, our ultimate trust does not rest in them or with them while we are thankful for them and while we pray for them as God's people our trust our exclusive shelter in a time of storm uh, is the Lord Jesus Christ I'd like to read a little familiar passage to you now as we've already directed you to Luke chapter 6 and verse 45 uh, let's read through verses uh, 45 to 52 uh, together here this morning Mark writes, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida 
while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left uh, for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and he cried out, and, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But he immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is a familiar scene to many of us this morning, but I feel an appropriate one to consider on this Lord's Day. There are three different gospel writers who penned their memories of this event. Mark, of course, Matthew, and John. As we go along this morning, we'll highlight various aspects of this story shared by each author. And for us, though, Mark writes, presenting Jesus as servant. So, as we unpack this small gospel narrative today, let's keep in mind that truth that Jesus came to us not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, as Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 says. Jesus loves to serve. He loves to serve all the time. And he does serve us as we endure the storms of life. So, as we go along this morning, let's remember these three simple words in this narrative. Well, should I say these simple words that would explain and help us work through this narrative? First of all, let's remember the situation. Situation. The second word, compulsion. Compulsion. And the third, compassion. Situation, compulsion, and compassion. What's the situation that we understand here in the book of Mark? I'd like to first explain the setting of our short little narrative. What we've always known is that this text comes after the feeding of the 5,000. There was a Jesus frenzy, really, beginning to build in the region. Jesus is becoming somewhat of a fad. He's trending, if you will, and he knew it. He was a popular guy on the scene now, and everyone wanted to go see him, hear him, and watch him perform his miracles. Let's go back just real quickly, even to the book of Mark, and see the stir of activity that surrounded the earthly ministry of our Savior just since chapter 1. In chapter 1, crowds were healed. In chapter 2 of the book of Mark, the paralytic was healed. In chapter 3, we find Jesus doing even more healing on the Sabbath. By the time we get to the end of chapter 3, we find out that he's even gained a formal following. This was a big deal on that day. 
Jesus had chosen 12 disciples. In that culture, uh, you would have been recognized if you had followers as either a philosopher, if you were a Greek, or a rabbi, if you were a Jew. Uh, this was a stamp of approval as Jesus' teacher. Uh, so he not only had a um, large, large crowd following him that did not know him, he did have a formal group following him that knew him as their savior. There's a mounting interest in the way he taught in parables in chapter 4. The disciples have already been caught at sea in a storm before they're caught in a storm in our narrative this morning. Jesus is with them in the boat at that time, and he tells the wind and the waves to hush and be still. He's already been confronted by the Gerasene demoniac. Remember his name? Legion. And when the man is delivered from Legion, he asks to join Jesus in the boat, and Jesus says no in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the Bible says that he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Well, the miracles and healings continue for the remainder of chapter 5. In chapter 6, his formal group of followers is sent out again. This is a significant event in this culture as well, where now the formal followers, the ones who truly were, we could say, saved or born again, uh, that were following Jesus, were sent out by him to teach what they were learning from him. And then we come to the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, and we know uh, that that was really more 10 to 11,000 uh, people at that particular time. So Jesus knew that there was quite a human tsunami of interest coming his way. I believe he knew the disciples couldn't handle it well from a fame standpoint. Now let's remember too, Mark loves to use the word immediately in his gospel. Overall, the word is used throughout to show that there's always an urgency to do the right thing when we serve the Lord. And he uses the word twice, as we've already read in our story today. The first time he uses it to show us uh, that the day had been long. The disciples were exhausted, having uh, served, feeding thousands. But they were also in their exhaustion, probably not able to handle the fame and popularity that was coming their way because of the ministry of Jesus. So it was later in the evening, probably about 6 or 7 p.m., that the Lord uh, urges them and makes them, in verse 45, as we've already read, to go to the rocky, rocky beach and, and, and get in the boat. Remember those words? If you'll look at verse 45 with me, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. I can see the Lord gathering them up, speedily walking them down to the shore, making sure each of the men were loaded into the boat. And I can see Jesus even shoving the boat out into the water himself, uh, just in a determined way, making sure is exhausted, uh, somewhat probably confused by the interest 
uh, his disciples out into the water. And it says here, Mark uh, mentions that Jesus returned to the scene of the feeding and he spent time greeting the crowds and, and making sure that they were dismissed and, and on their way. Then Jesus returned to the mountain to pray. Some of the elevations around the mountains at the Sea of Galilee were up to 2,500 feet in elevation. So we're not sure how far Jesus climbed up into one of those mountains, but he did far enough away to get away from the people and get away from the frenzy and have some quiet time in prayer with his father. So this is the scene. Tired, but enamored with fame, the disciples are sailing off literally as the sun sets across the sea to Bethsaida. So from shore to shore, the farthest distance across the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles. We're not sure uh, specifically at what point the disciples took off and how many miles was it was across. But with a steady wind, the disciples could make it across in a reasonable time and still get the rest they needed along the way. So that's the situation. That's the situation. Now let's consider together our next word, compulsion. Compulsion. I think it's wise to consider something about these men I believe Mark mentions with good reason. Verse 52 says that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves but their hearts were hardened. I would say a certain, in certain times of our serving Christ, we might go through the same reality. These servants were told two more times in the book of Mark that their hearts were hard. The development of true servants of Christ always takes time, doesn't it? The hardness of our hearts sometimes we're not even aware of. The situations the Lord places us in will often expose where our hearts are hard and need to be softened. This is why our goal is to always be growing in Christ-likeness, always serving, as Mark presents Christ as servant, but always learning along the way, too. This is Paul's heart in Philippians chapter 3, isn't it? He's compelled by the love of Christ to pursue Christ-likeness, forgetting those things that are behind, always pressing forward towards the likeness of Christ, always understanding that he's never arrived, but always working towards being like his Savior. And that's the way it is with us too. I was sitting with a godly saint recently who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I would never suspect that this person would be struggling with any ungodly compulsion, knowing them, and yet they explained the struggle that they were having with a certain stubbornness in their hearts and how God was helping them deal with that during the storm of life. And it was a tremendous blessing to me and a tremendous reminder to me that even though I'm walking with God, I have a lot of growing to do. And when we experience various storms in life, whether it be the storm of the crisis with this virus or a particular storm that the Lord's providentially allowing you to endure. When we go through those storms, those hard parts in our hearts are often brought to the surface, aren't they? And by God's grace, he allows us to deal with them, to be molded 
by his grace and then to be uh, compelled to pursue Christ's likeness. And um, I think all of us are, are enduring that probably daily right now in various ways as we adjust to somewhat of a new normal here for the next couple months. So anyways, we can be serving and still unknowingly hardened in some areas. But I think it's a great thing to remember, a tremendous encouragement that Jesus actually still desires to use us. And he entrusts us with ministry, even though he knows we have these hard places that we yet do not know. He still compels us to move forward. So let's be reminded too that the disciples here did obey the Lord. They all got into the boat. There's no one standing on the shore, stomping their feet against the stone, saying, you know what, I'm enjoying this popularity. I'd really like to stand around these people a little bit more and, and have myself encouraged. I, I, I'm tired. Uh, I passed out all the food. I didn't get to eat any food, so uh, I'd really like to stay on shore. They're not doing that. Jesus had them get in the boat, and every one of them obeyed. These are obedient men. They had a number of compulsions in this little story, but they did have a compulsion to obey. And I want us to be reminded that even though we struggle with our humanity, it's a blessing to know we can still walk with the Lord and still obey. Do we tire in our own weakness? I do. Like, Lord, how can you use me when I've thought this or I've done that, and yet we still have a compulsion to obey. This is how God's grace compels us as growing followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask all of us to think of each other in this way? Assume we all understand that we fail. Assume that we all have hard parts that have yet to be made known to us let alone others, but always assume that God's grace is our tutor unto obedience and service to him. I think it's very important for you to remember that regarding me and for me to remember that regarding you and you for each other. We are all works, progressive works of God's grace unto Christ's likeness. And it's possible to still obey and grow in Christ's likeness as we work out the kinks, so to speak, and of our character. I trust that you are seeking to obey the Lord as his disciple in the midst of all that's going on at this point. I think it's also vital here to see that sometimes obeying God leads us into some difficulties, some storms of life. If these followers of Jesus didn't obey, they would have never experienced the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Many listening this morning understand the principle from our narrative all too well. What storm are you enduring because you sought to obey the Lord? There are thousands of testimonies among us in our own church that can be shared. Our former pastor endured this because of his obedience. After trusting Christ as his savior in college, he made his way to his father 
and told his dad that he was interested in, in ministry. Uh, that didn't go over well uh, with his father. As a matter of fact, uh, for a time, his, his father told him that if you're going to be involved in that kind of a lifestyle, uh, you're really not welcome in this home. That struck to the core of his early young Christian life, uh, brought about tremendous discouragement, and he sought to still obey, though, and to pursue the ministry. And for 34 years, we were all very grateful here at Grace that he did just that. But a, his obedience brought great difficulty. Well, thank God, by his grace, uh, that relationship uh, as the years went by, was restored with his father and strengthened. And um, his father actually, towards the end of his life, began to actually appreciate uh, his own son's investment in ministry uh, in our community. So we're thankful for that. And some of you have obeyed the Lord and suffered the consequences, so to speak. That's what servants do. We obey, we grow, and in our obedience, we suffer providential storms that develop our character. So these men were about to suffer according to the will of God. As we studied last week, the gusty cold winds billowing over the mountains around the Sea of Galilee blew down upon the warm air just above the waters of the Great Lake, causing a severe wind storm. I don't believe we're told in any one of the gospel narratives that there was lightning or rain. If you've ever been to the region of the Sea of Galilee, you know it sits in a bowl surrounded by mountains, if you will. It can be sunny outside, and these winds can kick up, and they do so very quickly. You see, this is, I believe, the most shallow body of water of its size in the world. I believe our own Lake Erie is the third most shallow body of water of its size in the world. Lake Erie has often been um, put alongside the Sea of Galilee as having some similarities there. When the water is shallow and the winds come quickly, storms happen almost instantaneously. The disciples just get to work. They lower the sails and they begin to row manually. They do so for quite some time. John tells us in his uh, mention of this narrative that they're about three to four miles across the lake when the storm hits. A gospel writer tells us that the time is about 3 a.m. or the fourth watch of the night. If they took off around sunset and they're three to four miles across the lake by 3 a.m., then most writers believe they could have been rowing intensely for some four to five hours and they're absolutely physically spent. The wording of our text says that they were straining at the oars. John writes they were frightened. This is a strong word. It's a word used uh, of people who riot. They're at their wit's end and willing to do anything they can to survive or to, should I say, get their way or their, in their will to live. They were truly coming to the end of themselves. I can remember my wife and I having the opportunity to go watch one of our 
sons play baseball in Hawaii. We had the opportunity to take a little kayaking excursion. And we had found this one little excursion that allowed you to kayak out towards uh, the island um, where they supposedly filmed the Gilligan's Island. Now, if you remember the beginning of the show, um, when they're on their way to a three-hour tour and it turned into a frightful trip, there was a picture of an island uh, on the screen. Well, uh, that was the island that we were able to kayak to. While we were on our way, though, uh, some severe winds uh, came over the mountains there in Hawaii, and uh, it was causing us some uh, great trouble. <laughs> we were straining at our oars. Uh, it seemed no matter how hard we tried to move forward, we were being moved sideways or backwards. And, and we were at this for some 20 to 30 minutes until uh, the tour guide who's on the pontoon boat uh, out in front of us realizes that everyone in this little tour is not uh, making it very well. And we actually wondered if we weren't going to become like Gilligan and his friends uh, stranded on a remote island uh, in, in quite some trouble. But nonetheless... Uh, we somewhat understood what it meant for them to strain and to struggle. We really came to the end of ourselves. Uh, we became so tired. I became so tired. I couldn't even stay in my kayak. My kayak tipped and, uh, and they had to come get me out of the water. Uh, but nonetheless, these folks were frightened. They were scared. Um, and they knew that they were in trouble. So now they're probably putting their oars down. They're giving up. They're probably sitting down with no strength even to speak to one another and just maybe waiting for the boat to capsize and meet their final fate. You know what? And sometimes when we obey the Lord uh, and he brings us through a storm, he wants us to realize the only way to endure through this storm is through his strength. You know, it's okay. It's okay to come to the end of ourselves even as Christ followers in the time of a storm. It's okay. Are you there today? Have you obeyed in the storm? Has the storm come because of your obedience? Have you come to the point where you've come to the end of yourselves, maybe a little bit distraught and discouraged because you're wondering why the Lord's put you through so much? When you chose to obey, and now you've persevered so well by God's grace, and now humanly you've come absolutely to the end of yourself. And you feel, what's going to happen now? You still have this compulsion to trust and obey and to move forward, but actually, humanly, you can't. You just can't. I want to let you know, that that's a normal place for a believer to be. And it's okay. There are no superheroes in the church. The only infinite super one we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why we investigate next his compassion in the whole narrative, his compassion. What do we find out about the Lord Jesus Christ again by way of the text? Well, he's the servant of God. And he's been praying. By the way, that's what servants of God do. 
They love to pray. They love to pray. But they're never disinterested in obedience. They're never disinterested in the suffering of the saints. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the great servant of God, who's praying, is always serving, but he's always interested in the suffering of his children. By this time of the day, it's dark now. Jesus, we're never told, slept. He's been with his father, praying through most of the evening and early morning hours. But he's aware. Jesus is omnisciently aware. He's the creator. He had saved these men and made them his children. He'd already saved them physically from one storm that we mentioned before, and now they're in trouble again. He knew they were in trouble because they had obeyed him. So Jesus decides to take a walk. Each gospel writer uses the word for walk that is most common. Jesus isn't running. He's not moving casually along. He's walking. He's determined, but he's not anxious. The wording of the passage tells us that Jesus knows just how fast he needs to go to get to his hurting saints just in the right time. This is how Jesus works with all of us. He's always arriving just in time. Yes, we know that Hebrews 13 teaches that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But, we're, but when we're in our trouble, because of our obedience, he makes his value, if you will, his presence and his help expressly known to us when we've completely run out of our own resources to help ourselves. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't allow us to live life like this all the time. But he allows the storms that come in obedience at appropriate times for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that many of you know. You're probably already thinking about it at this time. He says, there's no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will make a way to escape. So I often wonder if we've interpreted a way to escape in this passage as being a situation of relief or a way of relief from hardship. I assume it can be, but I wonder if the way to escape can always be Jesus first. When we come to the end of ourselves in a trial, he's always there just in time, isn't he? When no one on earth can help you, even in the most spirit-governed way in which you live your life, he could help, right? And he did help. Mark says, and Jesus intended to pass by them. This didn't mean that he was disinterested. The other gospel writers make sure that we know that. The wording here just tells us that Jesus isn't alarmed by the disciples' distress. He's just out being himself, walking on the lake as if he created it or something. And he omnisciently arrives to their boat just in time. I could remember a guy in my group that prayed together in college. 
who endured some really, really difficult times. He was asked to leave school because he couldn't pay his school bill. He had just lost the girl he had thought he was going to marry. He wasn't sleeping well or eating well. He was a good athlete, and he wasn't playing his sport very well either. I can remember him telling me that his father called one night. Uh, he broke down on the phone and was uh, weeping uncontrollably with his dad on the other end of the line and told his dad that he was pretty much done. He had no more energy to get out of bed in the morning, let alone go to class or eat or play. This is what he told me that his dad told him on the phone. He said, son, sometimes no one can help you but Jesus. Maybe you should just go seek him and stay there for now. That was great advice. That was great advice. So back to our story. The disciples see someone they think is a ghost. It's dark outside. If it's not raining or lightning, Jesus must have been walking right next to the boat so they could see him. Jesus made it incredibly obvious that he wanted in on the situation to help. He knew they had learned their lesson. He knew the hardness of their hearts had been softened in this particular area of growth. Matthew lets us know that when he says they fell down to worship him after he was led into the boat, that their hearts had been softened. So we find them here calling out to Jesus. They were terrified. And Jesus spoke. What did he say? Take courage. Literally what this means is stop immediately feeling your terror. I've got this. And then he says, it is I. Is this a statement of divinity, you think? Is he saying, I am? Is Jesus saying he is Jehovah, creator, sustainer, and the one who keeps all of his divine promises? And then he says, don't be afraid. And then the text says he got into the boat with them. What a beautiful thing Mark writes here. The God-man, the servant of the Most High, joins them in the storm and then gets into the boat to ride out the storm with them. And Jesus ends up being the way of escape for these terrified men. When he steps into the boat, immediately the winds stop and the waves settled. It's calm and completely still. Have you ever been on vacation and gone off out by yourself at night? I have. Uh, maybe it's a vacation where there's a beach by the ocean. It's a clear night. Uh, there's little to no wind. You just go out onto the beach to take a stroll. And I like to just sit down on that beach and uh, lay back, look up at the stars, take a deep breath, and just listen to the waves gently lap up on the shore. Uh, it's calming. It's settling. So think about this. These men going go from com being completely terrified, completely terrified, to complete peace. They're relaxed now. They're exhausted, but they're relaxed. John tells us something even more interesting. Immediately after Jesus stepped into the boat, 
they found themselves on shore. Was this a miracle? Did they notice the immediate calm? And then did they immediately know that they were physically safe because they landed on shore? John wants his readers to know that the Son of God longs for his children to know safety and security, always in a timely fashion. Mark says the men were astonished. They were completely amazed. John says they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Having drifted off course due to the strong winds, with Christ's help, they found themselves back on course, going exactly where they had been told to go. That's a fascinating reminder for me, and I think for all of us, that when we obey, sometimes God brings storms in the midst of our obedience to teach us something. Those storms may even drift us off course, no matter how much we fight to stay on course. We come to the end of ourselves. We have nothing left to do right, but then Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And what does he do? He assumes by grace that we want to obey. And even though we've gotten off course, he gets us back on course and gets us exactly where he desires us to be. Matthew says that they fell down and they worshiped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the son of God. The disciples' lives had moved towards a greater commitment and a deeper, more meaningful service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we conclude this morning, Mark doesn't mention Peter in his narrative for some reason, but the other two gospel writers do. What about this disciple who is often criticized for his impulsive words and actions? We know that he's in the boat. The other two gospel writers talk about his words and actions in this boat and when he sees Jesus. When he sees the Lord Jesus, he asks him if he can come to him by walking on the water. And Jesus says, come on out. The winds are still gale force when Peter steps out of the water. So what do we learn from Peter in this instance? Well, at least he did it. At least he stepped out. He had faith enough. It reminds me of a text, if we seek him, we'll find him. If we seek with all of our hearts. He kept his eyes on Jesus as he walked out onto the water. He's the first man and the only man other than Jesus Christ to ever say that he actually walked on water. But when did he begin to sink? when he got humanly distracted by all that was going on around him and he took his eyes off of Jesus. Now that's easy for us to do in storms, isn't it? I mean, even when Jesus comes to us and he becomes the way to escape and we're confident enough to step out and trust him, because of our broken humanity, we're still tempted to look around at our circumstances and doubt 
And when we start to get distracted by our circumstances and take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, then we find ourselves coming back to the end of ourselves again and unable to help our own walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. But still, what did Jesus do? He's always the exclusive way to escape again. He reaches out to take Peter's hand and he walks with him to the boat. Now, I think, I can't prove it scripturally, but I think he's probably carrying Peter to the boat. We don't know, but they get to the boat together and the winds immediately stop. And in a moment, they're safely on shore. So here we are in a once in a lifetime scenario, hopefully with the whole COVID-19 virus. You know the situation. What is your compulsion? Is it the compulsion of the disciples to obey? Have you seen the compassion of Jesus in the last couple weeks? Personally, have you seen it and experienced it? Has it completely provided exclusive escape for you? Are you willing to continue to step out in confidence and keep serving and keep obeying as we keep trusting? Can we find our way to trust the way the persecuted one of the Old Testament, Job, learned? Job 42.5, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Let me just suggest this as we pray. Let's continue to saturate ourselves in the scriptures. You've been doing that personally, and I've seen many ways that you've been doing that interdependently among one another. And that's like so encouraging, right? Let's continue to do that. Let's make sure that we keep focused not just on the scriptures, but the Lord of the scriptures. Our Jesus, who, while we've been obeying him, has chosen to bring us into a storm. And as we come to the end of ourselves by being distracted uh, by what we hear on the news or by seeing death mentioned many, many times in the course of a day, by living through our own fears of getting this virus or maybe even an elderly loved one or maybe even our little baby at home or maybe you're a gal who's pregnant and you've got a little one inside you and your fear you fear just understand that fear is understandable but Jesus is the shelter in the time of storm trust him trust him he's always there just in the nick of time and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he will, he will continue to help you obey and get to that place designed for you in his will. It's exactly where you ought to be. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder of this little gospel narrative. We thank you for inspiring it and preserving it for our learning and for our encouragement today. And we pray that we find our way to Jesus, who is our exclusive help in a time of storm. I pray, Lord, that we would stay there as we continue to obey and be conformed into Christ-likeness. We love you, Lord. We look forward to being together again around your word at 6 o'clock tonight and then with each other in the word throughout the week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us. I thought we would just finish here with a hymn, if we can. Now, we've already sung this hymn. Uh, we're going to re-sing it again, just as a refreshing reminder to us. Uh, I love you, Lord. And um, we thank again Pastor Mike for putting these songs together. And we look forward to uh, ministering together and to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs in the weeks ahead uh, in more creative ways as we live stream together. So enjoy singing together this final hymn, and when this final hymn is concluded, so will be our live stream. We love you all. Please keep in contact. Send me your pictures, again, of your live streaming together. Send me your encouragements, and I'll relay those to others in the church as is deemed appropriate. All right, we'll see you next time.